Okay. We are jumping back into Romans. Chapter number 7. I didn't mention this today. I want to mention this so I don't forget, and that is Lord and I are both kind of standoffish this morning. Uh, it's not because we think we're going to get cooties from you. It's because we are afraid you might get cooties from us. <laughs> we, were, we were at the beach for a couple of days, and we managed to pick up a cold or something while we were over there, and we've both been a little bit miserable the last couple of days. It's the last thing we want you to go through. So uh, I probably won't be hugging people this morning, which is very unusual for me. I'll have to restrain myself. So we are in chapter 7, and we're going to be picking up in a minute or two with verse 7 in chapter 7. Before that, I just want to speak for a few minutes about the fact that there really are some very great truths that are revealed to us in Scripture uh, that very often are very much clothed in mystery. A lot of that mystery has to do with the fact that we don't have the mind of God, and so we don't think on the same level that God thinks. Uh, a good example of what we're talking about is the doctrine of the Trinity, how God is one and at the same time is three in person. If that doesn't sound mysterious to you, I don't know what possibly could. So mysterious, there really is nothing at all like it in all of existence. Nothing. There is no analogy. There is no way of explaining it in human terms that really bring it in the fullness of, of all that it encompasses and all that it involves. We have to admit that, that the Trinity is rather mysterious to us, but we believe it for one reason, and that is because it's very clearly taught in Scripture. Can't get away from that. There is another great mystery is Christ Jesus himself, and that is how in the world is it possible that one being can be both God and man at the same time? Again, there's absolutely no analogy, nothing that we can use to compare that with it. It is a mysterious doctrine that is unique unto itself. And so please don't try to come up with some kind of analogy to explain it to people because I can guarantee you if you do that, you're going to be teaching them heresy. All the time thinking you're not. There is another great mystery, and this is the one that we've been focusing on in our study of Romans over the last few weeks, and that is this. That is the mystery of the Christian. How it is that there is a sense in which we are absolutely, completely, and totally dead to sin, but at the same time, Sin yet remains in us. Again, no analogy. Don't try to come up with one. There's nothing like it. And what I'm telling you this morning is this, is that if you are a believer, then you are absolutely unique. There is nothing like you. We talked uh, in our study of Romans uh, about the law early on, 
And, and the idea, the concept that, that Paul lays down early on is this, is that even though their time came when the law was written down, God's law code was written down by Moses, that the law of God had always been in the world even up to that point, just not necessarily as obvious to people as writing it down in a book made it. If you think about special revelation, we talked about all the way back in the first chapter, uh, and that is this. There are a lot of people who, uh, who claim there is not a God, but in doing that, they're denying what their conscience itself tells them. Because of what's called natural revelation, no one has an excuse. There's no one that will be able to say, I didn't, I didn't do that, this or the other, because I didn't know that you were. The fact of the matter is, is if you look at nature, as you look at creation around us, you can come to no other logical or reasonable conclusion then there's a God who created all of it. For that, all people will be held accountable. All people. We also know the law has been around. It was, it was, it was here before Moses wrote it. Jesus summarizes the, the, the law in two statements, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and strength. In other words, when you're convicted and you understand that there is a God because of special revelation, the conclusion to it is this, is you should love that God for who that God is and worship that God for who that God is. And that's true of all people. We do know this, that God did give the written law, first of all, to the Jews, the Ten Commandments, and then elaborated on that a great deal in the books of Deuteronomy and other, other places, uh, which set them apart as being a very privileged people, set apart from everyone else in a lot of ways. And one of those ways was this, is God gave them his word. He gave them his written law. And we know that, uh, you know, in the days of Jesus, it's very obvious, and of Paul, that, uh, and, and here we're talking about Paul, who was a devoted Pharisee, who believed the law was the ultimate of everything, who believed he really understood it, until he was converted, and then he understood this, that as much as he thought he knew the law, as much as he thought he loved the law, he didn't know daily squat about the law. He believed that it was by the law, the keeping of the law, and by the way, it was the, it, the Pharisaic flavor of the law, their interpretation of the law and the application of it that amounted to a law code that was just unbelievably heavy for anyone to even try to, 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 to bear. And, and I don't know how any person, even the Pharisees themselves, could ever think for a minute they were able to keep all of it perfectly because it was so, so voluminous. But Paul, one of the things that we need to rem remember is this, is, is the old Paul died on that road to Damascus. 
from that point on, he was no longer the same person he was. His wrongful understanding of things was corrected. As much as he knew the law, Paul grossly misunderstood the purpose of the law. He believed it was by the law that you made yourself right with God. And apart from it, you could, that would not be possible. The new Paul, who emerged from that Damascus Road experience, understood some things that he didn't understand before. The law is given to us for a lot of reasons. One of those is it reveals to us the character of God. In other words, if we want to know what God looks or is like, then we look at his law as a reflection of his perfect character. That these are the things that are important to God. It also tells us what God's expectations are for us. And it becomes the standard whereby which we will be judged. On the keeping or the not keeping of that law. The thing that Paul came to understand on that momentous day is this. Is there is a purpose of the law that supersedes most of what we've already talked about. And that purpose is to drive us to the cross of Christ. That when we see the law, we read the law, and we understand what it says... And we see ourselves in that mirror. It is obvious to us that we do not hold up to that standard. By any stretch of the wildest imagination do we come close to it, any of us. And this is what Paul was confronted with that day. He would agree with everything that we've set up to this point. Paul was a zealot for the law of God. So one of the principal purposes of the law is to show us our sin. To bring light to the fact that we don't come close to keeping the law. Any of us. Convicts us. Convicts us for our absolute and desperate need of a Savior. One who keeps the law for us. Because we do not come close to keeping it ourselves. Those truths are true for everyone. Everyone has fallen so short of the glory of God that no one has anything to brag about. It's not that we've, we've just come real close, but we just didn't quite make it. 
is that we have all fallen ridiculously short to the point that none of us has one inkling of anything to brag about. Nothing. None of us is better than anybody else. We stand on our own. Let me read from Romans, finally getting there. Verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin taking opportunities through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. And I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. And this is the commandment which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Sounds pretty complicated, doesn't it? You should see it in the Greek. Uh, Paul is, he's, he's obviously one of the greatest intellects that ever lived on the face of the planet. I mean, he really is. His mind works in places that ours just don't. Sometimes it is hard to explain some of the things that Paul says and what Paul writes. Sometimes I would say that some people would make this claim, and that is that Paul can sometimes be confusing. But with all of that said, we need to understand that Paul is perhaps, other than Jesus, is the greatest Bible teacher there ever was, even more than Moses. Even the other apostles. We have far more of the teachings of Paul here in the, in the New Testament than we do of Peter, John, or anybody else. God used Paul in a very, very powerful way. And part of that had to do with the power, the greatness of his testimonies we were talking about in Sunday school this morning. Paul was the least likely person to be voted the most likely to become a Christian of perhaps everybody that was living at that time. He was not the candidate that anybody would suspect would convert to this, this new religion called Christianity. He was probably the last people most people thought would convert to this. And that is why his testimony is so powerful. Because he has one of the greatest testimonies, the greatest, most powerful testimonies of any believer ever. And this is his testimony. You know, I were not there to witness it, but it's given to us through the written Word of God today so that you and I can have some semblance and understanding of the greatness of the conversion of this man who did everything he could before to snuff out Christianity before it ever got a foothold and started spreading. And then to do an absolute 180-degree turnabout do you think that got people's attention? Like nothing else maybe would have? 
God is a powerful God. And let me tell you, if he can use Paul like he used Paul, he can use you like he wishes. In ways that you can't even begin to imagine. He does it all the time. As a matter of fact, very often he chooses that least likely person to do great things. He might be that person. As we said before, the law has different purposes to reveal God's character to us, to tell us what God is like. It also tells us what God's expectations are for us. It is the ground upon which we will be judged. Let me just say this so no one misunderstands what I just said. That our sin has already been judged because it was judged on the cross. But Paul gives us a reason here why the law. And, and just remember, we, we, we come across this in verse 7. is another one of these rhetorical questions. One of these, these questions that Paul anticipates people are going to ask based upon what he has just written. You're going to say, I don't know how many there is. There's like 20 different questions that we see pop up here all through the book of Romans. And every one of them has the intention of explaining and preventing people from under, misunderstanding what he just said. And applying it wrongly. That's what he is doing here in verse 7. He's afraid that because of what he just said, that some people are going to conclude that there's something bad about the law. That the law is a bad thing. Now, I don't know how anybody would really come to that conclusion, but Paul anticipates there may be some people that fall in that category. That because of what he just said, they're going to conclude wrongly that the law is bad. And what does he say to that? He says, may it never be. God forbid, heaven forbid, that anybody would so grossly misunderstand what I'm saying here and draw that conclusion out of it. Paul says here that the, the, the law, the law of God, one of those Ten Commandments, thou shalt not covet that it was by knowing that, that it, it, it taught him that you shall not covet. In other words, long not for things that are not yours, that belong to other people. Be satisfied with what God has given to you. I want to think this morning about that first greatest commandment that Jesus gave, and that was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and strength. Covered by those first four commandments of the Ten Commandments. Paul, above all people, would have told you on a stack of Bibles that he kept that, all, kept that law. That if there was anybody in the world who was coming close to keeping those first four commandments, he was him. And there were a lot of people around him probably that were encouraging him to believe that. But again, Paul 
didn't really understand one of the major purposes of the law, and that is to convict us, not of our self-righteousness, but to convict us of our sin. Of the fact that we all fall short of it. See, on that road to Damascus that day, the old Paul, the old man died, and a new man arose. The man, the old man, thought he had an understanding of everything. He was one of the most scholarly people of his time amongst the Jews, amongst the rabbis. He was very well respected in his understanding of things. And what Paul found out and understood uh, when he was confronted by Jesus on that road to Damascus is he thought he knew everything. He didn't know diddly squat. He knew nothing. He didn't know the most important things. They were oblivious to him. There was a sense in which the law itself hid itself. We've talked about this a lot over the last few weeks, and that is there are these two truths that have to do with sin that apply to believers. One of those is this, is as a, as a believer, my sin died with Jesus Christ on the cross 2,000 years ago. There is a sense, therefore, in which I am dead to sin. I'm certainly dead to the consequences of sin because he paid the consequences for me. But the other truth is this, is that even though that is true, there is still a, a, a semblance of sin in us. We still sin. Sounds like an oxymoron. But just remember chapter 6. That we are no longer slaves to sin. We are now slaves to righteousness. There's a sense in which you could say this, and I think you would probably have a pretty good ground for doing this, that before his conversion, Paul was the greatest sinner that ever lived. Certainly in the top ten or top hundred. The whole time thinking he wasn't. That he was the cream of the crop. He was at the top of the class. He was the one who had been voted by all of the other Pharisees as the one most likely to succeed as a Pharisee. But then Christ came. And he changed Paul. And Paul began to realize that for all of his life he had blinders on, thinking that what he was seeing was reality, and now coming to understand that it was far from it. The blinders were gone. Now for the first time he saw sin for what it is. He saw his sin for what it is.
See, what the law does, guys and gals, is this, is it doesn't push things down deep. It brings things to the surface. We have this ability to repress things, things that we don't like, things that we don't like to think about, things that we don't want to experience, and so on, thoughts that we don't like. We have this ability to suppress them down. But let me tell you what happens with the law is the law makes them surface. Brings them out in the open. And some things here, if you took them out of context, it would be easy to misunderstand what the apostle's saying. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and, and I died. In other words, what Paul's alluding to here, there's a sense in which the law contributes to the fact That sin is. Let me just say this, because I don't want to be confusing about this. But really, I think the point of what Paul is trying to make here is, is the law is good as long as it's used rightly. But it is very bad if it is used wrongly. And very often people use it wrongly. Paul, just think of Paul. Paul was there when Stephen was stoned to death, and he was in full agreement of it. He was probably rejoicing. This dirty, rotten sinner, Stephen, got what he had coming to him. Can you imagine how crushing it was for Paul when when? when he came to the knowledge, the understanding through the Holy Spirit working through him and in him, when Jesus visited him on that road to Damascus that day. Can you imagine the weight of the sin that Paul felt at that time? Because he was the one who would have been the, the, the voted the, the, the greatest persecutor of the church, of the early church. Can you imagine what it would be like to all of a sudden realize what you had really done? The whole time you think you're doing God a favor and you come and realize that what you did was this, is we, you contribute and rejoice in the killing of the very Son of God. What about you? When, when you were first confronted with the gravity of your sin, and maybe some of you never have even got to that point. Some of you here in this room may still believe that you're one of those good people, that you're better than everybody else, that you're a step above most, that if there's a good candidate to enter into heaven based upon their own righteousness, then you happen to be that person or in the top few. 
If that's you, then you haven't come to understand what the purpose of the, God, of the law of God is. And I would say the principal primary purpose is, is to show you that you're a sinner. See, this is what Paul, all those years, you know, we don't know that much about Paul, what his, his early upbringing was and, and all that. We know that by the time he came on the scene that, that he was a very active uh, Pharisee. We know that he had a sister who had a son and that kind of thing. Other than that, we, and we know he's from Tarsus, but we don't know anything about his family. We don't know anything about his upbringing. He just suddenly appears here on the stage in the New Testament and... Uh, we know he was the tribe of Benjamin. But very, very little. But we know enough that this guy was a guy transformed. The foremost persecutor of the church became the foremost propagator of the church. The foremost hater of Jesus Christ became one of the most devoted lovers of Christ. The one who did everything he could to snuff out the church of Jesus Christ became the one who, more than anybody else, expanded the church of Jesus Christ in his day. Would Paul say that the law is good? Yeah. Why? Because it was a law that showed him who he really was. There's some people there in the church today who believe the law really has nothing to do with Christians anymore. Jesus has paid the price. He's paid the penalty. You know, I don't have to worry about those Ten Commandments. I don't even have to know what they are. All I have to do is live and depend upon Jesus. Absolutely, completely, totally in the story. Don't throw anything in there that's going to mix that up or mess it up. But let me tell you guys, the law is good, and the law still serves a good purpose in our lives. It helps us to keep on track. It drives us repeatedly to the cross of Christ. It keeps us from arrogance. It keeps us from having a holier-than-thou attitude toward other people. But I think there are a lot of people in the church today that have almost completely forgotten about the law. I mean, how many sermons have you listened to? Some of you listen to sermons online. How many of them this year have you listened to that had to do with God's law? Not many. I guarantee it. I can remember there's a couple that came and visited years and years and years ago. And I was really kind of excited about it because they came from a church down south that was planted by a guy that I went to seminary with. So I knew that contact. And he, his parents actually lived here in Dunellen at one time. And so I would see him every now and then and, and all that. So this new couple came. They came to church 
first Sunday, and then I had a conversation with him about it later on, and basically said, they're not, we won't ever come back, because all you do is talk about sin. I had the audacity of using as an illustration, you know, Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, as part of my sermon, you know, and all that. And that is, you know, you, 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 you're not supposed to even talk about sin anymore because Christ has done away with it and this, that, and the other. You're taking away something from the gospel if you even bring sin into the picture. But see, that doesn't do a service to Scripture. It certainly does not do a service to the part of Romans that we're getting into now. Because what we're going to find with Paul is this, is Paul had to grapple with it. He had to die to his misunderstanding of the law. And it was through the law that Paul finally saw himself for who he really was. And it was the continuing of, of, of that law that continued to reveal to him more and more who Paul is. And the greatness and the value of the gospel of grace. That even though that was you, God saved you anyway. You weren't worthy of it. Or deserving of it, least likely to get it. God gave it to you. Free gift. If that doesn't blow your socks off, I don't know what possibly could. It blew off Paul's far more than we know. That is how great our God is. And that is how great his law is. 